alone by Christmas, murmured the man, shuffling the cards. The general must have been mad. It isn't reasonable to have so many mountains. I wonder if the travel posters are still on the wall outside Charing Cross Station. Come to sunny Italy. The corporal wriggled down into the straw again and continued to stare into the rafters. He didn't care about the war anymore. He'd almost reached the desperate stage when he wouldn't care about surviving. He had fought his way across North Africa. Then he had fought his way up here from Salerno, through orange and lemon groves, through great stands of evergreens, sombre pines and great oaks. Then into the craggy mountains, through defile after defile, sometimes with the help of a mule, sometimes along mountain tracks where a mule couldn't go, and the soldiers were the beasts of burden. All was onward, it seemed, through fog and rain, with little to eat, and, and that stone cold. He'd been in the fight for the bridge at Scafati, where Richard had copped it. That's when something inside him had broken. A crowd of them had then crossed the coast and struggled across the blue shoulder of Vesuvius. At an observatory tower on the western slope of the mountain, they had rested with their backs against chestnut saplings, and had looked upon the immensity of sky and sea and mountain, disbelievingly. There had been no rest when they got into Naples. They had rushed after Jerry to the Volturna. In pouring rain they had struggled to cross the river at Capua, only to be driven back. The Yanks got across higher up. After that it was one hill after another, through little whitewashed villages clinging to the mountainside like swallows' nests, until they had reached the banks of the Galliano. Outside one little place with a saint's name they had been met by a small group of black-dressed women, their hands pressed together in prayer, who beseeched them to go away, that their village might be spared. It hadn't been spared. It was a queer little place, nailed at a drunken angle to the side of a ravine. It did what they had expected it to do. When Jerry put a barrage of heavy mortars down on its head, the village gave up the ghost and slid into the ravine, children, grandmothers and all. They had cast the little bunches of mountain flowers that the women had given them, after the train of ruin down the mountainside, sadly. The laughter broke out again next door. The man with the mouth organ was having difficulty with good King Wenceslas. Somebody kicked on the door and bawled out, Christmas Eve booze is up! There was a scramble for mess tins, weapons and helmets. A felt babel, carrying a submachine gun, ran down the steps of a deep underground shelter in the vicinity of Monte Cassino. He drew back a heavy curtain concealing the entrance to a crowded, smoke-filled, ill-lit dugout. Achtung! Tonight's patrol will consist of the following. He read nine names. Jawohl! Some of the acknowledgments could hardly be heard. In less than two minutes, he had dropped the curtain back into position and was out in the snow-covered street. For a moment, he looked up at the abbey and the star-filled sky. He sniffed the cold air and listened. Somewhere in the vicinity of a bombed church, he heard the singing of Stille Nacht. Here, mate, watch the wire. Peace on earth is a password, and for Christ's sake, come back quietly. Good luck, chum. A British sentry standing by a snow-covered stone wall watched the patrol as it crossed the field and was swallowed up into the night. The sentry stamped his feet. Someone had said this was the worst Italian winter in living memory. Nine men moved on in the darkness, silently, isolated, a little ship in a hostile sea. They passed through a gate thrown back across a dirt road, 
filed past a row of flattened mud huts that led to abandoned vegetable allotments. They then reached an open meadow. The first nervousness was passing, the hard tightness in the chest had eased off, and the trickle of sweat down the spine had ceased. With luck, it would be no worse than the loss of another night's sleep. The path dipped down toward the river. Normally there was a good deal of loose gravel here, which made an awful noise under heavy boots, even when you wore socks over them to muffle the noise. Now the blanket of snow quieted the earth. The only sound was the crunch of snow as the men followed each other down the slight incline toward the water. It was quite dark, slightly warmer. The patrol shifted course to the right when the first clump of willows came into sight. Something squawked at the side of the water. There was a plop as an animal left the ice and entered the river. The corporal had covered this ground a dozen times in the past two months. Usually he had followed the platoon sergeant, but tonight he was out on his own in front. With the river on his left he felt happier about his bearings. One day from a forward post he had watched a heron standing in the shallows about here. Not long ago curlews and peewits had risen from this meadow when a shell exploded. Two days ago he had studied the bank of the river for hours through his glasses, without seeing a bird of any kind. The corporal slowed down until he was sure that all his men were with him. Without speaking, he made off upstream. The others followed. Over on the right, in the direction of Hill 730, a considerable battle was developing. The hills were silhouetted against the sky as the light cast by the shell explosions blinked all and off. A red flare rose and fell, giving the hillside a fiery glow. A great chandelier of light fell into the battle area, turning night into day. The blinding light was reflected from the dark clouds above the mountains. That nasty woodpecker noise coming from the mountainside was German heavy machine guns, quite deadly. One peck and men went down like lumps of wood, arms and legs sticking out in all directions. It made you afraid of all machines. The light machine gun that Number 8 carried, at the end of the section, was a pea-shooter compared to the heavy. There was a slight movement ahead, and the corporal tensed himself and peered into the darkness, Something scurried across the snow. The patrol continued. At the opening of a creek running inland across the meadow into the foothills, the nine men halted to rearrange their loads. For a few minutes they crouched on their haunches and listened. Except for the fighting on Hill 730 and some sporadic shelling across the river, there was no noise. The men spoke in the slightest whisper, faces close together. They took a short swig from the corporal's flask as a small plane hovered above their heads. Who knew? The plane might go slamming into the hillside. Anything as long as it didn't drop a flare, followed by a canister of bombs. Number two didn't care whether the plane was friend or foe. His face and hands were getting numb with cold. He cursed the snow, he cursed the war, and he cursed the winter, especially this winter, filled with rain and cold and mud and snow and death. Monte Camino had been his first real taste of fighting mud, rain, and Germans. For ten days on the slopes of Camino, he and his comrades had fought all three, and had been defeated by all three. Exhausted to the point of weeping, they had been dragged out of the line and plopped down in a wet meadow within sound of the guns. They'd been ordered to rest. Monte Camino was still there when they went back into action. It still blocked their path. It had rained so heavily that the general had called the next offensive Operation Raincoat. 
The rain wasn't deceived, nor the mud, nor the Germans. His mob had almost perished on a hilltop called La Bandita. They fought all day to see whose hill it was. Then torrential rains had washed out the battle. He had spent the night standing huddled against another fellow in a hollow tree. The rains had stopped the next morning, but by then they were like drowned rats, and it was all they could do to bring in the wounded and bury the dead. It was from there, in November, that they got their first real look at Monastery Hill. They had been looking at it and fighting for it ever since. Monte Cassino was a door sealing the entrance to the Liri Valley, the Alban Hills, and the approaches to Rome. The Germans intended to keep it shut. The patrol turned up the creek into the hills. Several more low-flying planes flew over in the direction of Hill 730. Explosions followed as the planes dropped anti-personnel bombs. In the dark it was like trucks tipping out loads of heavy stones. By the time the anti-aircraft guns had got into action, the sound of the light planes had almost died away. At the end of the section, number eight was dragging one of the legs of the machine-gun tripod through the snow, causing a snake-like furrow to follow him in the dark. Number eight was listening to the explosions in the distance. He kept well up against number seven. Where he could, he stepped into number seven's footprints in the snow. It was easier that way. He watched the bowed head in front of him. He wondered what was going on in number seven's head. But what did it matter what was going on in other people's heads? He followed his instincts. They got themselves into this pickle by people thinking too much. People who just sat and thought and thought were like birds who sat and preened and preened and who never used their feathers or laid an egg. Number eight's ambition was to keep a full belly, stay safe, get home, and at all costs avoid the thinkers. What price thinking when it landed you on a perishing hillside on Christmas Eve, far from home, with the fear of death inside you?